Hello, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the histrionic films from the VHS era. Tonight, we have a true drive-in double feature for you. We're talking about Andy Warhol's Frankenstein and Dracula, also known as Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula. These might be the first movies we're discussing that actually got releases by the Criterion Collection. That's how highbrow this episode's going to be. <laughs> anyway, my name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, do you feel like classic literature pre-1900s is just sort of missing themes relevant to a modern audience? You know, themes like fascist eugenics, oppression by a gilded capitalist system, or vegetarian vampires? Then, as of this broadcast, you can watch both Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula for free on YouTube in widescreen. Assuming you got a big working adult account that lets you watch big working adult content. Or if you're a fancy big working adult, then you can watch both of these titles back to back with your pinky up via Criterion streaming service. And then you, like us, will truly grasp that to understand death, you must fuck life in the gallbladder. So you mentioned the, the widescreen issue in your synopsis. And I just want to say, the only way I've ever watched these movies before is on my Video Gem VHS releases, which are really awesome boxes. Like, I'll put them on Instagram. Um, but they are full screen, like cropped full screen. So this time, I happened to have a Japanese VHS release of Frankenstein that I'd never watched. So I watched that one to take notes. And it was in widescreen. And I never realized how beautiful the set design and the cinematography in Frankenstein was because I'd only seen the zoomed-in cropped version. And it was a different experience, for sure. Just a heads up, this is not on Amazon. So if you are going to watch this and you don't have, uh, you know, just some copies of the big boxes laying around of these films, then definitely go through the extra effort to watch this widescreen. What, uh, what did you think of the the visuals, I guess, of, of Frankenstein. So before we even start any of that, I specifically remember that when we were growing up through high school, these were some of the first films that we watched from this, this like category of like bizarre foreign cinema. Well, at least Flesh for Frankenstein. I specifically remember we watched that one. I don't know if we ever got around to Dracula or if I just forgot it. All right. So you you had so we were in similar boats because I had not watched these since at least college. So it's been it's been ten to fifteen years since yeah. I, I watched these movies. Yes, we are ancient. So what was the question? Oh, the 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 set design, right? Yeah. Um, so the things I, the things I really remembered about Frankenstein was just how weird Udo Kier be with his dialogue and mannerisms. Yeah, Udo Kier's is a, he's a strange guy. Yeah, but, but this time, the set design really pops. And I don't know if Andy Warhol had anything to do with it, but there is definitely a lot of stylish art 
in both of these films, but mostly, uh, mostly in Frankenstein. I feel like the actual set for the first film was mostly done in studios, whereas the second film was actually probably done in a historical house. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I know a lot of the sets were reused between the two movies. But let's take a step back and and talk some about the making since you brought up Andy Warhol. So my understanding is that Andy Warhol had nothing to do with the making of these movies. That he popped on set a few times, but otherwise, this was all Paul Morrissey, the writer-director. And... Paul Morrissey wanted to use, well, him and Andy Warhol were friends. They were both in the factory, that sort of art scene together. And Paul Morrissey thought that if he put Warhol's name on it, the films would get more publicity. And he had done that for the last few films he'd made, like um, Trash and Flesh. I, I can't, I bad. I can't remember what all they made before this, but that's my understanding as far as the Warhol role goes. Do you know? Do you know anything different? No, I. My research was basically limited to a little bit of Wikipedia and some fun facts on IMDb. These movies were made back to back. I know that, and they have mostly the same cast, mostly the same crew, both written and directed by Paul Morrissey, both starring Udo Kier, and. Joe D'Alessandro. Let's, since we've never done this before, we've never done a, a double feature. Let's start with Frankenstein and then we'll, um, we'll go into Dracula. And this is just going to be more of a freewheeling conversation rather than um, a typical walkthrough. Uh, I want to share the back of the Video Gems box with you and then let's play the trailer. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, so... I thought this was one of the things I want to talk about is like what you think the point of this movie is and the back hints at that because the only thing we have is a long quote from Playboy magazine and it says writer director Paul Morrissey director of Andy Warhol's flesh trash and heat brings to the screen the most outrageous version of Frankenstein ever swooping bats severed limbs gobs of livid human entrails, a hideously efficient decapitating gadget, some well-turned breasts and buttocks, plus assorted spare parts are among the treats that slither off the screen. Andy Warhol's Frankenstein is the most outrageously gruesome epic ever unleashed. Horror fans can get a kick from this one. What do you think of that as a description? That is literally the only thing on the back of the box. Yeah. Wow. Not even a synopsis, just a review. Yeah. Well, that doesn't t- seem the, normal. The title kind of speaks for itself. Yeah, I suppose. But this isn't your normal retelling of the Frankenstein myth. <laughs> no, I guess it's just a story. So how about before before you trade play the trailer, let's talk about some of the differences between oh. ha- have you read the book? Uh, a very long time ago. Yeah, it's been a while for me too. But so what stands out uh, to you that's different in this version? I mean, I, 
I don't think I remember the book well enough to do that. Um, I can do it for Dracula. I cannot do it for Frankenstein. It was a really long time ago. In the book, Frankenstein is definitely not married to his sister. In fact, he's not married at all, come the start of the book anyway. I can't remember if he gets married during the course of the book. He's simply engaged to Elizabeth. He's not middle-aged. He's like a young guy in college. He does not create a female creature. Uh, He creates a male creature first, and the male creature requests that he make a female. Whereas in this this, uh, version has much more of a eugenics purpose. Although there is a degree of that in the book as well. Frankenstein is definitely power hungry and says that his goal is to create a race of beings who will worship him. So that's, that's maintained all of the subplot about the, the gardener who the wife begins to have sex with and the children, all of that is, is not in the book. I I think the biggest difference is just, all of the content that either tries to be outrageous or political. None of that's really in the book. The book is pretty standard romanticism. Man, now you have me questioning if I've actually read Frankenstein because I do not remember anything about eugenics in the original story, like at all. There's, There's not in the way that it's here in the movie. Like, I don't think there's any... A racial discussion in the book. I just know that Frankenstein does want to create a race of beings to worship him. Man, I thought it was just all about trying to create life. Like that was the milestone. I mean, I think that's part of the hypocrisy of Frankenstein. Like that's what makes him a twisted character is that he purports to be all about science, but there was a reason he chose this experiment, right? Like he does have these delusions of grandeur that he wants to achieve. And that pride is what leads to his downfall. I think that's the, that's the big arc of the book. I guess perhaps this is more accurate to the book than, than I thought. In some ways I think it is, but all right, we'll get to there. Let's play the trailer and then we'll discuss. Andy Warhol's Frankenstein is here. Kiss him! Kiss him! Newsweek magazine calls it the first original Frankenstein in years. A perversely fascinating movie. Only close. Ah! Uh, not, not so close! I can't... Stop it! What are you doing? I can't breathe! Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, with its swooping back, severed limbs, hideous decapitating devices, and various spare parts. They all slither off the screen in what Playboy magazine calls the most gruesome epic ever unleashed. Andy Warhol's Frankenstein goriest, sexiest, and wildest Frankenstein ever filmed. 
that man did not sound very interested <laughs> to, to, to narrate that trailer. Oh, he sounded like the typical drive-in grindhouse trailer narrator. Yeah, but they're they're pumping that Playboy, that that Playboy, um, the Playboy uh, review. Yeah, like the the support, the the Playboy support. They're really they're really pumping that Playboy support. Well, I mean, go, so go back in time and imagine you were responsible for marketing this movie. What would you do? I mean, I think just like most of the films we reviewed on here, they really lean into that. This is the grossest shit you've ever seen on the screen. I mean, yeah. How else do you market a an X-rated literary adaption with like softcore porn elements made in Italy with an Andy Warhol association? Like, it seems like there's a lot of canceling out there <laughs> where like the art crowd will be offended. The the porn crowd will be bored. The horror crowd will probably be probably be bored and grossed out in some ways. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't know who this movie was made for besides maybe Paul Morrissey. <laughs> I mean, I definitely don't think this is a horror film. Same with uh, Dracula that's coming up what would you call it? Like what section of the video store would you put this in? Like, like, are these films comedies? Like, like what if Christopher guest like dabbled in horror and, and everyone on set played the story straight? That's really what the feeling I got. Ah, I don't get the Christopher guest feeling, but I do think they're comedies. I would still, I would put them in the horror section and the boxes are definitely marketed like horror movies, but, yeah, I think they're really comedies. So since we already started talking about the set design, let's start there. I think this laboratory in this version of Frankenstein might be the best Frankenstein laboratory in any of the movie adaptations. Yeah, I feel a large amount of the budget went into building that fully functional crane. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of gadgetry, right? All right, so to give you an example of what you lose in the full screen version is like, you know the scene at the very end where Frankenstein's son is like turning that wheel and Joe D'Alessandro is hanging from the ceiling and you can't really tell if he's raising or lowering him, but he's doing something. Mm -hmm. All right, so in the full screen version, you don't see the son at all or that that crank you only get a close-up on d'alessandra's face and so you don't even know if he's being raised or lowered or anything you just see his face so you get none of that set Man. that was that was the scene where i had to like rewind i i put in both versions and compared them next to each other just because i couldn't get over how significant it was yeah i definitely didn't consider how how advantageous the widescreen was going to be for this film. Cause I mean, again, we watched this like so long ago. I, I think we watched this in a time period where most TVs were still square. Yeah, that's probably true in bowed outwards, right? Yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure we watched this on a CRT like forever ago. Yeah. So what were some, besides the laboratory, what were some of your favorite, like, images in this movie frankenstein's office jumps out to me it's 
we're introduced to it when he is first talking about Serbian ideals, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. But he mentions that the Serbians are great because they're descended from the Greeks. And all throughout his office, there is uh, art that looks like it is uh, inspired by classical, both Greek and, uh, and older art. Just like uh, there's a mural in the background. Let me pull up the, let me pull up the office. Yeah, so I'd like you to play this scene, actually, because there's there's several things I'd like to discuss from it. Okay, so just looking at the first still shot of this scene, you have what looks like two Greek wrestlers and like the... Man, I really wish I remembered the exact terms, but that Greek style of vase with the brown base and the black images on it, there's like two guys wrestling in the background in that style. Right? Yeah, I've al- I've always just said like Greco-Roman, but I don't I, I don't know that that's any more official. I mean, they both did art like that. And then r- to the right of that, you have this mural that looks like it belongs in a modern art museum. And that's what I was saying like I th- I thought maybe Andy Warhol had something to do with the set designer, maybe one of his team members had something to do with the set design because there are these these pieces in the background that just jump out at you. All right, let's play the clip. Cool. All the bottles and test tubes in the laboratory? Yes, Baron, I did. I worked the whole night to clean up everything. And why did the studio look in such a mess lately? Could it? I fixed up all the things. You know I like things clean and bright. How can I work in a mess like that? When I was studying under Professor Blumbach and Franks, we had to wipe the floors for two years before I could stick my nose into the laboratory. But Baron, you know I believe in your work. We worked so hard together. We did everything in the laboratory, and I'm so grateful to you that I could do that. I know, I know, Otto. You've been a very good assistant, and you brought in some good parts. That Manus was perfect. Thank you, Baron. But what we really need now is the perfect nasum. Yes. Something that will represent the finest feature of the Serbian ideals. What do you mean by this Serbian ideals? I've never heard about it before. But Otto, you don't understand. The Serbian race comes in direct descent of the glory from the ancient Greeks. Oh, I didn't know that. But where will you find those kind of nose? In town, Otto, in town. Oh, I remember when I went to school. Our governante was taking my sister and myself every day to school, and I saw this creature on the road, but we were not allowed to play with them because we were something better. They were peasants. They told us. More than once I escaped, standing there for hours in the field watching these creatures. Now our studies come finally to an end. We got a beautiful female. And I'm sure among these town people, we will just find the perfect nasum. All right. So there is there is so much in the scene that I want to bring up. But first off, what is this word, nasum? Nasum. <laughs> like, is that it's I don't think it's a real word in any language. Well, if you Google it, there is a urban dictionary entry for nasum. And what is that? Um, it's a way to say no. 
<laughs> which is not applicable to this discussion. Well, if you are well-versed in Greek or Latin and you can correct me here, please do. But as far as I know, nasm is not a real word. So who whose idea do you think it was to say it? Do you think it was in the original script or do you think Udo Kier is just improvising? Who knows? It does sound like he is improvising a little bit when he's talking about why the Serbian ideal should be uh, upheld. Just the way he delivers the line. It's either he wasn't quite sure of the wording or he's just going off. So I I read for the first time and I, I uh, in my research for this episode that originally Paul Morrissey wanted the entire movie to be improvised. He didn't want a script at all. But that turned out not to work, mainly because Udo Kier could not do it, couldn't Ooh. improvise. And so they just wrote a script each day. So each day they came on the set and wrote the script for that day. Wow, for something spontaneously created, this uh, held up pretty well. Yeah, I think so. Um, all right, so I don't know what's up with the word nausea, but what do you think the point of this eugenics... Serbian ideal conversation is like is this satire is it serious like what the fuck is this you know just like any racial purity philosophy you really shouldn't give it too much thought uh, the baron is a lunatic and he has lunatic ideals and again I, I mentioned this earlier but I think it's great that that reanimating some semblance of life into um into a custom flesh golem is just like a footnote to to the real scientific achievement of like jump starting a super soldier eugenics program by like just getting zombies to bone well like do you think that the, that they're trying to satirize eugenics like it, i don't know i think that there's something going on here beyond just absurdity like Yes, I, think I, I do agree with that. Um, first off, I can't help but feel there's a huge flaw in this play in here, right? Like, there's only one progenitor couple. Inbreeding is going to happen pretty quick. Well, you're talking about a guy who married his sister. <laughs> yeah, some some scientist he is when he doesn't recognize the <laughs> the the dangers of inbreeding, right? Yeah, so I want to get to the inbreeding thing, but but first, so let's tackle this. So it we we haven't we're not get, we're going to get to it later, but I feel that both this film and Dracula are kind of about class warfare. Did you get that vibe? Yeah, I think that's a huge element. Um and in both films with the D'Alessandro character. So I I do want to get there, but I don't know if that's uh, so that's not at play with the eugenics thing, but that is in the other part of this conversation, right? The well, the idea that Frankenstein was not, not allowed to play with the peasant children because he was better than them. Right. Um, so he was like socially engineered to, to be the way he is. Um, and know. then earlier in the earlier in the film, his wife says that she pulled their children out of school because there were street urchins around the school and that she didn't want the children near the peasants. So this, this theme wasn't 
really obvious to me in the first viewing of Frankenstein um, forever ago, because I don't think we ever really thought about things like that. And it didn't quite strike me when I rewatched it this week. But after watching Dracula and going back and thinking about this film, I think it is huge. Um, I, I think tackling eugenics is a way of criticizing the upper class because they are so concerned, well, stereotypically concerned with higher breeding, keeping lines pure, you know, keeping keep, keeping the the social groups in their separate and rightful place. I think tackling and satirizing eugenics is just a form of, um, you know, criticizing all of those things. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. I think you might be on to something there. So let's let's explore that a little more. So we've got the Joe D'Alessandro character here who's like a peasant farm worker on the on the estate, um, but ends up being sort of a concubine for Frankenstein's wife. What did you think of this performance? Well, I mean, I'm assuming that and stable boys were like the pool boys of the 1800s, right? I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's funny that a lot of the same actors make an appearance in both films. But the fact that this guy is cast as the same character. <laughs> yeah, essentially, right? Is great. But... I mean, even though it's the same role, um, they are different characters to a degree, but we'll get to that in the second film. Um, yeah, but what... They both serve the same purpose, though, right? Like, sexually. They're both used as, like... Gosh, what's what's the term for it? Like, s slumming it? They're, they're, they're in that slot for upper-class women to, to ogle. Well, they're also... He is the... He is like the working class character, right? And this is more obvious in Dracula, where he's actually like quoting Marx and stuff. But did did you think his acting was good? Was it bad? Like, I think it's appropriate for the tone of the film. I mean, it, it's definitely worth that he has like that <laughs> that upper like New England accent amongst all these other people that have German or you know just at least vaguely European accents. Then this guy comes in sounding like he's uh, straight off the set of, um, of like a gangster film. Yeah. I don't think he fits in at all. So Joe D'Alessandro was also part of Warhol's factory. My understanding, and I don't know a lot, but he was kind of a troubled kid, like in and out of jail, I think. And Warhol and Morrissey, saw him and basically cast him on the spot in their first movie, which I think was, I think their first movie was Flesh. He, he's in all their movies, not just these two. And he became sort of a sex symbol for both women and men. And he was openly bisexual and made gay and straight porn and acted in these movies. And I think of him the same way I think of Marilyn Monroe. Like, I think he's a terrible actor. He doesn't even try with the accent. He doesn't fit in at all. 
I think his performance is ostensibly bad in every possible way, but he's got sort of a magnetism that draws you to him and makes him interesting. And I think Marilyn Monroe's the same way. Like she was famously terrible at things like learning lines or showing emotion, but people were just drawn to her. She had this magic about her. I think he has the same thing. I have to take your word for it because it has just occurred to me. I've never seen Marilyn Monroe in anything outside of um, still pictures. Oh, wow. Well, you've got some, you've got some things you should watch. Perhaps. Especially but... start with, start with some like it hot. Cause it's really funny. Hmm. And she just has a small part, but that's probably her best performance. But I was actually wondering if the director even wanted him to fake an accent. Like, I, don't, I like, have no just, idea. Just, just be you. And that's it. I, I didn't like his character at first. I thought it was kind of plain. But after about 25, 30 minutes, yeah, he gets he girls on you. And I wouldn't want to change anything about his performance. Do you think that... So he's kind of our sex symbol, but do you think that the, that latent homosexuality is a theme here? Because hmm. my thoughts are we've got Frankenstein and his assistant who are... Frankenstein is clearly not sexually interested in his wife. And he is like creating new life with this assistant. You've got the... the D'Alessandro's friend from the beginning of the movie who is clearly gay and only interested in the D'Alessandro character. Is is he? I didn't catch that. Oh, well, that was my assumption because when he goes to when they go to the bordello, he has no interest and can't get turned on by the prostitutes. Yeah, but I figured he was just like um he was like asexual or something, because he was discussing how he wanted to go be a monk. He just didn't care about anything carnal and i don't know in that scene it always seemed to me like he's staring at the d'alessandro character so it, you know the the prostitute or the sex worker is trying to like you know rub on him and everything but he's not looking at her he's looking over at d'alessandro i'm not going to discount your theory because given who made this film that that is a very real possibility but just from a casual watching perspective, I had no reason not to believe this guy was just a straight wannabe monk. All right. Well, I I don't know. I felt an undercurrent of homosexuality throughout the whole film. I certainly but... don't think the assistant is into the Baron. And as far as the Baron is concerned, he spontaneously orgasms by squeezing organs. And I, don't, I think that's the... Comp- that's just its own thing. Yeah, so speaking of um, squeezing the organ, so uh, Frankenstein has um, like a gallbladder fetish here. Uh, and you quoted that line in the beginning that, you know, to understand life, you have to fuck it in the gallbladder or whatever he says. Fuck life uh, in the gallbladder. Yeah, so what do you think that's about? Do you think it's just a joke? Is it, like, what is that? So uh, I think this is the dark comedy at work. I 
don't think it's specifically a gallbladder fetish. I think he appreciates all the organs because he's squeezing what spleen. I'm trying to think of that scene specifically. Do you want to just play the clip? Sure. I mean, while you're looking for the scene, so when Udo Kier is feeling around inside the body, he says like gallbladder, liver, and he looks believably aroused. Like this, I don't know if this is good acting because it's ridiculous, but I believed that he was actually aroused. (laughs) Well... Udo Kier is no stranger for anyone who's an experienced viewer of older, especially obscure uh, foreign films. He just like radiates this uh, this very distinct aura. Like if um, like if John Claude Van Damme like studied to be a sorcerer instead of a fighter. But like I always appreciate his performances, and if I ever made a film, I would be honored if Kier starred in it. But his presence is usually akin to a, to like a dead canary in a mine because he has starred in a lot of absolute garbage. But thankfully, these two films are not in that heap. Um, I think his performance is always great. And even ignoring everything else in this film, um, all the substance that, that's available, I think he, his performance is worth watching this film alone. All right, so let's play that scene. For those of you who haven't seen this film, the camera is just on his face the whole time. Yeah, so the thing that stood out to me listening to that is the music. What did you think about the musical scores in both these films? Yeah, the the soundtracks are not appropriate for either a horror movie or a film that's just meant to gross you out. Like it this was music to tenderly squeeze your girl's organs to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the musical scores to both of these films are, like, lush and dramatic. Um, they were done by Claudio Gitzi, who only scored, like, five movies. I think he was in some bands and things. But you're right that it, it is a 
it's ostensibly an odd fitting score, but it gives both movies, you know what? It makes them feel classier than they should be. Yeah, I totally agree. Anything else about that scene you want to mention? Hmm. It's not that scene, but there is a similar one in this film where he looks at Otto, his assistant, and says, like, what are you doing here? You're sick. Don't look at me <laughs> while he's doing this stuff. Yeah, see, there's the, the homosexuality. Is it? I think it's just more like, wow, he's, he's really into that corpse. Uh, speaking of Otto, that guy's performance, he has like wild, crazy eyes. Like they're, they're, he's pretty effective at seeming like really wacky in this one. Whereas in Dracula, he's more of like a straight man. If this guy came, if this actor came around like 40 years later, he probably would be a hobbit in a Peter Jackson film. I can see it. Specifically for the Frankenstein film, almost none of the characters are named at all. I mean, they all have names in the script, but outside of the Barons, well, Baron, Baroness, and Otto, oh, and the uh, the maid who's in charge of the children, like, nobody has names. It's strange. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, some of the characters, I guess we can get to this now, like, like, why are the children even in this movie? For the ending? I guess, but there's not really a point for them, right? Like, it just feels like we have characters here arbitrarily, and there was not a lot of thought put into what purpose the characters would serve. There is there is one other thing I want to mention about Otto and his sexuality. So there's a scene where he's looking at the female creature and he peels back the bandage that's covering her vulva and then he covers it back up and instead he licks the scar along her stomach like the stitched up slice and then he bites into it and then Frankenstein comes in and he's like she's ruined and is is angry um but what do you think this scene is about is it just trying to be gross like I mean, obviously, the Baron is deranged, and I think his assistant is no different. It isn't just that he bites her. I think he tries to do the same organ squeezy that the Baron pulls off flawlessly earlier in the film, but he does not have the proper medical experience to safely squeeze digestive organs in in an animated zombie. So he somehow kills the monster in the process so there's a um so do you think the implication is that like he doesn't know what to do to to be like traditionally sexual Mm, maybe i mean both of these people are obviously um unstable but i think his interests are pretty similar to the barons it's just that he doesn't have the technical skill necessary to act the same way in a in a manner that or act to perfectly emulate the baron i guess is what i should say so there's a before we move on there's a couple other 
sexual moments in the film I want to bring up. One is there's a scene where Mrs. Frankenstein is like going to town on D'Alessandro's armpit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what did you think about that? Did you notice at the end of the scene that uh, D'Alessandro was trying really hard not to laugh in front of the camera? He puts uh, his arm in the way. I did not notice that, no. Yeah, go back and look. It's only for like half a second before the scene ends. <laughs> so I, I don't think that was in the script. I don't think he was ready for it. I, yeah, that it, it's it's funny because the the actress that plays Mrs. Frankenstein she does exactly what the character is doing, which the character is pretending that she is very disapproving of D'Alessandro and that she's very like prim and proper when in reality, she just wants to bang. Right. And like her husband's not giving it to her. The actress is kind of the same way. Like looking at this actress, I would not guess this is the woman who's going to like uh, make oral love to an armpit. <laughs> But I guess everyone has their thing. I like, mean, it's a lot classier than squeezing corpse organs. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. No, no judge. No judgment. No, uh, no. This is a judgment-free zone. We do not kink shame on this podcast. Although sometimes we kink question. And then there's another scene where where in the beginning, D'Alessandro and his friend are at the bordello. And there's, there's, we just see a lizard like crawling across the bed. And then the girls freak out and like run outside. I don't know. I don't know what I want to say about that scene. I just thought it was funny. I can't figure out if this brothel is just like ahead of the curve because it has like the signature, like OnlyFans tapestry on the wall and everything. Or if perhaps this is just like a, a brothel custom that has been adapted for like a modern like digital sex worker audience you know what i'm talking about no no okay um maybe maybe people at home know what i'm talking about anyway um yeah where did that lizard come from we're, we're looking at some prime man butt the camera pans off and then suddenly lizard yeah do you think that it was planned or did, or did it just show up nah, i'm pretty sure they probably found a lizard outside and threw it in there <laughs> <laughs> going going back to Mrs. Frankenstein, I also like that after she goes to bed with D'Alessandro the first time, she she points out to him that they have completely modern plumbing facilities and that he should take advantage of them every day. I mean, that's a very reasonable request to make in the 1800s because I, I don't think bathing was a, a very high priority yet among the riffraff. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was funny, but it's also, yeah, historically accurate. He's like, yeah, don't worry, Baroness. I'm going to blow up your toilet just nice. And one other thing I thought was was really funny is when um, at the end, Frankenstein's hand gets cut off and he's like trying to reattach it. But at one point, he just gives up and throws it at D'Alessandro. What did you have anything in this one that you thought was like really funny or, or made you laugh? Yeah. All right. So there's the scene where the children sneak into the laboratory and they're not supposed to be in there and they find a severed hand 
along with a set of still breathing lungs inside a cabinet. Yeah, those lungs were really strange. It was really cool. That that's something that should be at a modern art museum right there. But the kids see this stuff and are like totally unfazed. The Baron comes into the laboratory, so they have to go hide in the back hidden rooms or like the dungeons of this laboratory. And while they're back there, there are rats and bats. And for some reason, those absolutely startle the children. And it's like the kid is still holding a severed hand and he's like, oh, it's a bat. (laughs) Yeah, and the bat looks... The bat looks, I mean, it looks like it all the movie bats did from this time period, but it's still ridiculous. Yeah, it's basically a bat attached to a string and a stick. Speaking of the special effects, one thing that I wanted to point out is all of the dead bodies don't actually look like dead bodies. They look like models that are like posed erotically. Yeah, like no, laying laying in erotic statuesque poses, right? I actually really appreciated that. Yeah, you know, this movie is not exactly striving for realism, so I think it's fine if they want to stylize something like that. Did you think the did you think the whole setup of the like mistaken identity where Frankenstein wants to get D'Alessandro's brain, but mistakenly gets his friend's brain instead. The sort of the asexual or gay guy's brain. Like that's like the setup for a sitcom, right? Like a morbid sitcom, but. Yeah, but I, I really like this aspect of the plot. And again, maybe it's just something that's supposed to, um, expose the uh, mistakes or ignorance of the upper class when they're trying to like make their crazy plans like they think they know everything but then suddenly chased monk that's kind of a sitcom setup and then the scene where frankenstein brings the two creatures to dinner and d'alessandro is serving and he recognizes his friend, but his friend does not recognize him. That's also kind of like a sitcom setup. Yeah, they come out wearing this like armor, looking like it's made of Olive Garden breadsticks. And then, yeah, kind of in like big posture collars, right? Yeah, and then like the the Baron is just like, "Hey, your manservant is making my shambling corpse assemblies nervous." <laughs> Yeah, and and the the rest of the dinner table, like Frankenstein's wife and kids, act like this is totally normal. Well, they don't know. Like, they don't know this the secret yet. Right, but even if you brought two strange, mostly naked people to dinner with you, like, I, my wife would think that was weird. Yeah. Well, I don't think they're mostly, I don't think they're naked at all. They're covered up pretty well. But, uh, maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like they're naked like every other scene. <laughs> yeah, most of the movie. Yeah, most of the movie. Um, but, but yeah, maybe they're just like, well, you know, my husband is so fucking weird that this is just not out of place for him. Of course, he's going to have weird friends. You know, my, my husband plays Smash Brothers and he's going to invite his weird Smash Brothers 
friends over for dinner to play Smash Brothers. You know, this is this comes with the territory. Oh, okay. Well, during the, one other thing about this scene is I think that Frankenstein refers to his wife as his wife in this scene, but in other scenes he refers to her as his sister, and he he kind of switches between the two. Do you think there's any point to her being his sister, or is that just to make the movie more perverse? Probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I mean, one, it makes him a little more perverse, but two, it paints him as part of the like old established like you know upper class you know royalty they they got their specific arranged marriages their rules they have to keep the bloodlines pure i think it's in it's it's on brand for what they're trying to portray the baron was that a thing in like the 19th century though or is this is this taking place further back I'm assuming this takes place during like the 1800s because that's when the original Frankenstein did. Yes. Yeah, so like they really have electricity outside of the one bizarro machine that they used to give the zombies life. Yeah. So the, the novel was written in 1818. So I guess it could take place around that time. So it was like, incestuous family pairings was that still a thing at that point gosh you know i'm really rusty on my um my incest history european history (laughs) yeah yeah my incest history aka european history um so i think we need to kind of wrap go over the climax and wrap this up because yeah i i want to ask about one more thing and then and then let's do reviews of this um at the end do you what do you think the kids are doing with D'Alessandro? Are they going to let him go? Oh no, I think they're gonna uh, continue their family's work, even though that doesn't really make sense in terms of the plot. It, it is an adequate ending to to end on. It's it's an adequate note to end the the movie on. So is. Do you think it's just supposed to be ambivalent and like well, are we supposed to know or is it supposed to be ambivalent? Hmm. I'm pretty sure that that guy is that guy is fucked. Yeah. You know, you, you could um Okay, so let's overanalyze the situation. Um first, what happens in the final scene is an absolute bloodbath. The the male zombie is sexually used by the barrenness in which he then crushes her to death maybe intentionally it's not really sure perhaps he just couldn't control his muscle strength it's kind of like an analog to the scene in the book where frankenstein accidentally kills that little girl by the uh, by the river in the forest something like that you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah i think that was the analog there um he brings the Baroness's body down to the lab and Frankenstein is obviously um, extremely upset. At some point, I think before this, Otto ruins the female zombie. So right now we have a body count of one. Well, two with the Baroness. Then Frankenstein kills Otto in anger. Body count three. The monster then turns on Frankenstein severing his hand with what must be 
the sharpest gate of all time just completely takes his hand off. Yep. And then dies from, I'm assuming, blood blood loss and then gets speared. <laughs> yeah, and his it, some organ is at the tip of the spear pointing out over the front of the screen, which because this was in 3D, I imagine that would have been like hovering above the audience. For sure. So body count four. This entire time, the farm boy has been hanging from a rope, um, probably was the next in line to be a part of the experiments for Frankenstein. Um, but his homeboy, the monk, just leaves him up there and kills himself. Body count five. Enter the children. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just this floor full of almost all of the movie's cast dead as these two children prepare the farm boy for um, for what's what's to come. It's not on screen, but you can basically assume that his life is over. See, I thought they might be letting him go. I really wasn't sure. I was like 50-50. Not with that music. Not with that soundtrack. Well, so I, re- I wrote down two things in my notes about this scene. One, despite the the content, like all the gore, this is really beautifully shot and choreographed and everything. And the gore, I don't think it looks real, but it looks good. Like, it's kind of like it. This is a bad comparison, but you know, in Dead Alive, where the gore is like so ridiculously over the top and it's it doesn't look real, but it looks great. And it, it, there's certain rules that only work in the world of Dead Alive. Like, bodies are super fragile in that movie. You can just like punch through one, right? And that's kind of how I feel about the gore in this movie is it's not realistic, but it does have a certain beauty and logic to it. This last scene looks like a Renaissance painting. Yeah. With so how the bodies are positioned. So I think it's beautiful. I also just think that the I, I'm going to get into this in my review, but I was a little bored this time until everybody got into the laboratory. Once everyone is was in the laboratory, I was like, oh, this gets really fun now. So maybe like the last 20, 30 minutes of the movie, I just thought was was really fun because before that, we kind of follow all the characters in their own separate side stories. And this is when they all come together. It's oh, it's set up almost like a classic comedy. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm confident this is a dark comedy. All right. So is there anything else that you want to touch on before we rate this? Nah, let's rate it and get to the next film. All right, go ahead. Give your final thoughts and a rating out of four. And I, I really feel like we might have covered everything, but um, it, this film is wonderfully odd. It is absolutely bewildering at times with genuine performances from the entire cast. Uh, Farm Boy included, genuine because he didn't even change his accent. Um, you know, Fle- Flesh for Frankenstein succeeds in playing out like a weird fan service dark comedy homage to the classic or horror story. And, um, you know, the meat and potatoes of both Frankenstein and Dracula have been rehashed so many times that 
both of these entries like really stand out amongst the crowd um regardless of how many frankenstein and dracula films you have watched it's really it comes down to like the bizarre philosophies and behaviors of the the signature characters who are portrayed by udo kier and and the other members of the cast but uh like i mentioned earlier i sincerely film i sincerely feel this film is worth watching solely for Udo Kier's performance, even though there's way more substance to take in. I might be overrating this film, but I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's not perfect, but I think it's a really fun watch. This used to be my favorite of the two, but this time watching it, I actually preferred Dracula. And it's because... I was kind of bored, as I said, up until everybody ended up in the laboratory. As, as you said, this movie's weird. Like, tonally, it's weird. Substantively, it's weird. I'm not sure what it's going for. If it wants to be funny, if it wants to be erotic, if it wants to be horrifying, if it actually wants us to get to think deeply about things like eugenics and class warfare, like, I don't know. I do like that all those elements are present. I just wish it was a little clearer what the intent of the film was. But as you said, or, or hinted at, I would rather watch this than pretty much any other film version of Frankenstein I've seen. Like, if I had to sit down and watch one tomorrow, it would probably be this. Maybe Bride of Frankenstein. That's the only one that I might choose before this. And, and I just, I think that film's brilliant. So, odd film. It took some patience for me to make it through but I do appreciate it, and it, it it gets really fun in the end. In some ways, I think this movie's more weird than it is good, but I appreciate weird. So I'm going to give it three stars. All right, so let's move on and talk about Dracula. Uh, you want to play the trailer, Leland? Yes. Frankenstein comes. May I introduce Count Dracula? Andy Warhol's Dracula. Let me out tonight. No, not tonight. But I don't have the food I eat. They only have chicken, vegetables I've never seen before. I'm sure they have no virgin meat. It must be tonight. The girls are beautiful. They look so pure. But how can we get at them? You're a loaded fracture! How old are you? Little girl? You don't know what boys do with little girls? No. Your sister never told you? No, it does. You are a virgin? Yes. You're telling me the truth? Yes. I believe you. What are those marks? The kiss of Count Dracula. 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 
treatment anymore. After Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, here is Andy Warhol's Dracula. So do you think this is the only version of Dracula where he's basically like a pitiful character? I'm of what I have seen. Yes. I, so I read and I had no idea, but this, this uh, is really fascinating to me. Um, Apparently there was a week between the filming of these two films and I don't know if I can believe this, but I read that Udo Kier lost 20 pounds in the week between filming Frankenstein and Dracula and that he was so weak, he really couldn't stand up in many of the scenes. And that's why he's in the wheelchair so much. How do you lose 20 pounds in a week? I don't know. See that he does look thinner. And he looks very weak and unhealthy, but I, I think that might be exaggeration. Mm, perhaps. I'm not saying he doesn't have that Christian Bale energy, but I find it hard to believe that the wheelchair was because of that. Uh, well, I don't know. I believe that he might be weak if he really is like starving himself, but I just don't know if you can lose that much weight that fast. Apparently, I read that Christian Bale for The Machinist, he lost all that weight by going on a donuts-only diet. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Which seems counterintuitive, right? But I guess there's not really much substance in a donut. Like, yeah, you're getting sugar, but you're basically you're getting nothing else. I do not have the nutritional experience to comment on that. I absolutely love the opening scene of this movie. Like while the credits are playing, we see Dracula putting on makeup. So like painting his face white and actually using a paintbrush to slick back his hair. We don't normally think of Dracula wearing makeup, but this is kind of the classic Dracula look, albeit pitiful, right? What did you think of that beginning? I do love this opening scene and it especially distracts you from the absolutely awful font that's used for both films where all of the U's are portrayed as V's. I didn't notice. Yeah. Did you know this movie starring Vito Kier? I, I didn't notice that, but I, I like the musical score in this one better than Frankenstein. And it's really lovely playing over these credits like dracula is clearly a a undead monstrosity that's been around for an inhuman amount of time so it only makes sense that he would have to dye his hair and like rouge his skin to actually look like a real person to blend into society let me tell you about the VHS tape before we get too into this movie, because I, I love the the covers for both of these. Frankenstein is like the front looks like skin and then it has stitching over the words Frankenstein. And then Dracula, this art is awesome. It's got Dracula like with bat wings hovering over all the other characters who are sort of in this like melee at the bottom. And he's got a big stake in him, a long 
uh, liquid drip, like a fluid drip, but it's blood. He's got what I think is a microphone, a giant screw, and a giant carrot all jammed into him. It looks really cool, but really bizarre. And then this is what it says on the back. We don't have a Playboy quote this time. It says, based on the famous Transylvanian legend, Andy Warhol's Dracula follows the giant success of his Frankenstein. There's plenty of sex and camp humor, and the faint of heart had better stay away. Blood is not in short supply. Warhol regular Joe D'Alessandro turns in his best performance yet as the gardener who beds the young ladies and finally does Dracula in. The old bloodsucker craves blood from only virgins in Warhol's version, and virgins are in short supply even in 1930 Italy. You know, I also, this is an aside, but I, um, when I was reading that, I remember Joe D'Alessandro is in this movie called uh, Seeds of Evil, where he plays an evil gardener. And it, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible movie. And, and he's terrible in it. It's, uh, it just made me think of how bad it was. Although it came out on Unicorn and it has an awesome box. Did you have any, um, what did you think of this idea that Dracula could only drink from virgins? I obviously the person that this the guy who wrote the first script also wrote this one because it takes a lot of very specific strange liberties with the source material and it's definitely not unappreciated <laughs> i i think it's a really interesting plot to revolve around a vampire that has to find virgin blood like he has to leave his home country I think he could probably poke a lot of holes in this plot. I feel like he probably didn't actually have to leave his castle. But, uh, okay, let's say you're a vampire and you need to find yourself some foreign women, some foreign virgins to satisfy your bloodlust and survive. Why would you go to the country that has the main export of garlic? On the one hand, I think that's kind of a joke. But, they also mention that Italy is a religious country, right? And so they think that they'll find more virgins there. That just means there's going to be more crucifixes. Like this whole <laughs> country is like anathema to a vampire. And that's where he's going straight into the heart. Well, crucifixes don't seem to bother him that much because when they go in their hotel room, there's one on the wall and he just takes it off. Like yeah, he clearly doesn't like it. <laughs> No, but it doesn't hurt him. This this film takes a lot of liberties with the traditional vampire mythos. So, first off, he can't just have any blood. He has to have virgin blood. He There are multiple scenes where Udo Kier is just walking around in sunlight. It does not bother him at all. No. But he still doesn't like garlic. But he's also a vegetarian when he's not <laughs> trying to consume virgin blood. But I don't have the food I eat. They only have chicken, vegetables I've never seen before. I'm sure they have no virgin meat. You'll prepare your salad later in your room. What did you think of Udo Kier's voice in this movie? 
Ah, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> they have no virgin meats, whatever that is. <laughs> right. I like his voice in this movie. It comes across as really pitiful. Oh, yeah. I, again, I think Odo Kier is a great actor, and he's not playing the same character at all. He has the same accent, the same energy, but it's not the same character. No, this character is is pitiful and kind of effeminate but eccentric i like when they're gonna leave romania he says he wants to take his flowers and his birds yeah and then his his uh chaperone shuts that down pretty fast yeah and then after he says that they're not gonna have the food he eats he says i guess i'll have to eat the rest of the romanian lettuce with lemon so the question is, was this guy always this pitiful or is this just like an apex predator on the ropes? Is he nearing the end of his life? Yeah, I think he's just pitiful because he's run out of virgin blood, right? So he hasn't had any blood to satiate him. Like, There's a scene, what do you think about this? There's a scene where he like, I think he's just eaten the salad and he lies down on the bed and like trembles and flops around. <laughs> like it looks really weird yeah that's also in the trailer <laughs> yeah what did uh what did you think of that of that i like how it only happens once and then never again <laughs> well he has kind of a similar reaction when he drinks the tainted blood and he vomits into the bathtub it, but there's a lot of like like you know, you you see like um like a severe alcoholic get like the tremors. It's like the most extreme form of that. I don't know if you'll get this image, but it, he made me think of David Byrne from The Talking Heads, like convulsing on stage. If you've ever watched David Byrne perform, it it can get pretty crazy, and that's what how Dracula struck me. But I his his assistant, I thought this was pretty smart. He sees a girl who's been hit by a car, and so he pretends to faint. And he conveniently had some bread that he uses to soak up some of the blood. And this, like, sustains Dracula for a little bit. See, they're going through all this trouble to put on the royal facade to kidnap a single woman for one meal i don't know how long that would even last but it seems like it'd be much easier to just like i don't know kidnap children and be set in your home country yeah i don't know if we should work too hard to impose logic on this definitely not but it's there just just to point that out so our setup here, right, is that he finds out about this estate with a supposedly religious family that has four daughters. But Joe D'Alessandro is working there as like a farmhand or an assistant or something. And he's been sleeping with all the daughters. So they're not actually virgins. And this is another like sitcom setup almost, right? Oh. Like, what did you think of the plot setup? Well, I got to correct you. He's only sleeping with two of the four. 
Right, but they're the two that are presented as the most desirable or the the ones who are ready to be married. Yeah, prime candidates. Yeah. You know, the the first movie, and I can't help but constantly compare this to the first one. The first movie is an adventure. You don't know where the plot's going. There's a lot of suspense. This one plays out more like a soap opera with an occasional horror scene in it. And... It didn't strike me the same way. See, this time, I used to not really like this one when I was younger. But this time, I thought it was a lot funnier than Frankenstein. Like, I got a lot more of a kick out of this one. Well, for starters, um, I, I, you, you kind of mentioned before we rewatched these that you didn't think this one was that great. But I definitely enjoyed it more than I thought I did. I, I thought I would. Yeah, I, I like I said that was that's what I thought before, but I enjoyed it more than Frankenstein this time. Hmm. So let's talk about Joe D'Alessandro. Basically, he's playing the same character this time, but now he's more openly Marxist and like quoting the Communist Manifesto and constantly talking about how like the aristocracy is going to fall and there's going to be a revolution. Did you think that was like? integral to the plot was it supposed to be a major theme is it supposed to be funny like what is this about like we discussed earlier i think both of these films are about class warfare this one more so than the first movie there's one point where he's not talking about money but he's one of the sisters is complaining that dracula is not attractive and d'alessandro says of course he's ugly You'll have to marry him and have ugly children. You'll be around ugly people the rest of your life, so you might as well get used to it. Yeah, and not only is Mario, that's his character's name, not only is Mario um, offensively communist, like very direct, he's also just offensive in general. Yeah, at one point he's talking about the 14-year-old sister, and he says, I'd like to rape the hell out of her. Yeah, this is not a sympathetic character at all. No, I mean, I'm kind of sympathetic to his Marxist um, ideology, and he becomes kind of the hero at the end of the movie. But no, in a lot of ways, he's like vile. It's probably intentional. It has to it has to be some sort of um, like sexual revolution thing, right? There's This movie falls into that like unfortunate 70s trope where there's a couple points where he like starts to rape somebody but then they end up enjoying it yeah um, and and, you know it kind of perpetuates that myth that like women just want to get raped well at least when it's joe d'alessandro doing the raping i don't know um not not a good look no not a good look no so on one hand this film is is really pushing this class warfare narrative but you can't really root for either side because on one hand you have this absolutely sexist misogynistic like mega socialist who's like ready to get the guillotine uh roaring and then on the other hand you have vegetarian vampire (laughs) who just wants to devour virgin women so that he can um, prolong his own life which is probably 
a metaphor for how uh, the working class is constantly, um, you know, abused for corporate profits. Well, I mean, here the the aristocracy is literally sucking the blood of the working class. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, not that not that the women in the movie are working class exactly. They're like a wealthy family that's fallen on hard times, basically. And so they're desperate for one of the daughters to marry Dracula so that their family will be saved from like financial ruin. But it's just weird how, again, you probably shouldn't think about this movie too logically, but these guys are basically con men. You know, Dracula and um, was it Anton, his assistant Anton, yeah. comes in and they're trying to con a family into chucking, chucking their daughter in to the, for, for food, right? I'm assuming a one-time meal, but they're going around giving their real name, saying where they're actually from. Like, they're really bad at this. Like, even if they were to get a woman and get away, what's to stop anyone from just finding them? Well, it was, like, it's not like the internet was around. It's not like you could Google search somebody. I mean... No, but you could go to Romania. You could send, like, a headhunter to Romania and find out where a baron lives. Like, there's, there can only be so many castles. Yeah, you're probably right that we just can't impose too much logic here. Yeah. I think this movie is mostly about like the humorous setup. And, and like I said, I, I found it funny. I had a good time with this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, <laughs> there's a point where they show Mario's bedroom like full wide shot. And he just has a hammer and sickle <laughs> like painted uh, above his bed. Yeah, I noticed that. If there was any confusion, this this man is very, very socialist. Yeah, I will say that, like, all right, so this is odd. This is an odd uh, juxtaposition. On the one hand, both these movies are really, like, clumsy and obvious. Like, if they want to tell you something, they're going to hit you over the head with it. But at the same time, it's not clear what the purpose is. Like, it's not clear what they're trying to accomplish. Well, like, what are they saying about Marxism here? Anything? I mean, I, I guess they're at least uh, acknowledging that there is a struggle. <laughs> they're I guess. acknowledging that this tension exists. But again, you can't back this character, this, this Mario character, because even though he is ultimately the one who saves the day, like... It's just like another asshole dethroning another asshole. Well, yeah, I was going to say he's only saving the day insofar as now all the daughters are stuck there and he can continue raping them. Oh, maybe that's the deeper message that I missed, that he's just more using the philosophies and banner of communism to get what he wants. Yeah, that's kind of true. So in addition to the comedy and the Marxism, there are some really like stunning visuals in this one too. There's one that really stands out where Dracula has just like, he's just sucked blood for the first time and he's standing shirtless and the blood is like trickling down his body. It's incredibly homoerotic, I think, but it's also just an incredibly beautiful scene. 
I don't know if I'd necessarily call it homoerotic, but it's definitely erotic. Um, that the idea of blood vampire blood draining being linked to sexuality is definitely not new to this film. That's that's been a thing. That's uh, no, and I, maybe maybe I should not say homoerotic. Maybe I said it because I'm a man, but I guess I'm also getting at Udo Kier is not the traditional male sex symbol right he comes off as more effeminate that's not necessarily correlated with homosexuality but it is a image of masculinity that we're not used to seeing especially in the 70s right so it just struck me that way i guess I mean, is that just an image of masculinity that's not common in America? Like, it's probably more common in Europe. I don't know. I mean, also, I think I think um, Udo Kier is homosexual IRL. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I think so. Not that that really that, that does not matter at all. But um, I I believe that both Warhol and Paul Morrissey were by D'Alessandro was by again I don't know that any of that matters except that the movies both of them are infused with sexuality like, they're just not afraid to sexualize the male body yeah that's a good way to put it yeah and I think all of the scenes where after he has fed on blood are just absolutely gorgeous from a like cinematography standpoint except for when the one scene where they like green his face to show that he's sick like he's in a looney tunes cartoon outside of that um i think all the scenes look absolutely great i think um you know the 20 pounds missing really shows (laughs) yeah there is a lot of like slapsticky stuff like that in this one i'm glad it's silly yeah i'm glad the green thing was only for one scene much like his uh, bed tremors from not having blood. Well, I think the scene where he vomits into the bathtub is even more ridiculous than the bed tremors. Like, he's convulsing. Yeah. <laughs> There's just something about Dracula vomiting into a bathtub that really uh, that really brings down the terror factor, right? There's just something about Dracula vomiting into... I don't know. It was like a rectangular two nozzle, maybe toilet porcelain bowl on the floor. <laughs> I don't know what he was vomiting into there. I don't know. But, you know, one other image that really stood out to me in this one is there's a scene where Dracula is going through the halls of the estate in his wheelchair and the camera is attached to the chair. Yeah. And it's facing him. And this is somewhat more common now, but that kind of camera setup was really uncommon in the 70s. Like that seemed way ahead of its time to me. Yeah, that camera trick was was taken by Requiem for a Dream. It, it was it, this. <laughs> I mean, other movies have done it. That's That's where I remember seeing it first, where you had the one guy running away and uh, the camera was like right pointing at him in his face as he was running off. Except this time it's a vampire in a wheelchair. I might be wrong, but I think that they invented something new for Requiem for a Dream to get the camera to stabilize the way that it does. Mm-hmm. So I think that movie actually got some attention for that gimmick. 
and yeah, I think it's really disorienting and effective in Requiem. Uh, but I thought it was cool here. Um, it's just like on the wheelchair. I, I, you know what? I've seen it in 70s movies attached to cars before, but even that wasn't that common. What did you think of the very end of this where Dracula is dismembered? Yeah, uh, just like the first movie, the <laughs> dial goes to 11 for like the last 20 minutes of the film. Just turns into an absolute bloodbath. I, I, I think the... The dismem- All right, you, go ahead. you go ahead. I was going to say, I think the dismemberment here rivals the one in Monty Python and the Holy Grail for being like ridiculous and comedic. It, it is a little silly, but when you look at ancient or not ancient, wow. If you, if you look at older vampire lore, um, one of the ways to kill a vampire is by dismemberment. It's not always through um, a stake through the heart. Although in, in the case of this film, they kind of combined all the methods together. Yeah, they, they, they utilize them all. I mean, if you're, if you're going to take a swing at the, at the aristocracy, you better make sure you don't miss. All right, so is there anything else in this one that you want to bring up before we rate this? Oh, gosh. You know, we need to talk about how Mario in his Saint Saint Mario saves the day, saves the youngest daughter of the family by taking her virginity so that she will no longer be a valuable target for Dracula. I mean, I kind of insinuated that earlier when I mentioned him uh, saving the day by maintaining his ability to rape these girls. Hmm. But yeah, she's what, like 14? Yeah, but it's an adult playing a 14-year-old, so we kind of knew how it was going to play out, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he says within the first, like, 10 minutes of the movie that he'd like to rape the hell out of her. (laughs) I think 10 minutes is a little soon, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And then Udo debases himself by licking the virginal blood off the floor, off the clean tile floor. Yeah, on the one hand, I was like, well, if he really was desperate, he probably would. On the other hand, I was thinking about the filmmakers like, you went that far. Yeah, you went that far. Like, you had to do it. But it doesn't really surprise me after after Frankenstein. Like, they didn't have many limits. Yeah, I think this was a, a little more extreme than than anything in the Frankenstein one, but... You think this is more extreme than squeezing a gallbladder to orgasm? Well, at least the... Eh, hmm. This might be more taboo. Yeah. All right, so let's give final thoughts and rate this. Uh, what would you give it out of four? Oh, God. Actually, there's one more thing I want to mention. So the dad, the dad of the family. Yeah. This Italian Colonel Sanders looking ass. I could not tell what this guy was saying about 85% of the time. And I did read that he ad-libbed all of his lines. Well, like I said earlier, they wanted to improvise these movies entirely. Yes. um, And this man definitely embraced the spirit of that. All he did was talk about the family and how cool Dracula's name sounded. 
And I was like, dude, why, why don't you just marry him? Why are you throwing daughters at him? Yeah, he is kind of a useless character. I, yeah, I don't understand why he's in, in the script. All right, do you want to do you want to go to final reviews now? Yeah, let's go to final reviews. All right, go ahead. Um, as mentioned earlier, I I can't help but but constantly compare this one to the first film. Uh, Blood for Dracula plays out more like a soap opera than the strange uh, adventure of Flesh for Frankenstein. Um, there is a a heaping dose of <laughs> erotic scenes in this film we didn't really talk about it but this film has more sleaze in it than frankenstein which is really saying something uh special because uh for flesh for frankenstein got onto the video nasties list they got an x rating but somehow this film dodged it despite having way copious amounts of softcore sex um, well, they were both rated X, but in Europe, uh, the video nasties wasn't about sex. It was just about like gore and combating the satanic panic. Oh, I thought it was more of just like a content thing. Was it really targeted towards like the the, the rise of Satanism? Yeah, it was. It was only to tar. It only targeted gore and violence, and the there was it was explicitly linked to like the the fear of you know corrupting youth of driving them towards satanism of decaying like family values all of that but they didn't care anything about the sex hmm all right then well this film has dismemberment <laughs> it does yeah dismemberment there's a consuming uh like blood off floors i don't know it's just it's just strange that this film dodged bullets that clearly hit flesh for frankenstein um and anyway um despite less happening in the plot i think this film is about 10 minutes longer than frankenstein and um, i haven't gone back to check but i'm willing to bet that the extra runtime is likely due to all the non-plot essential romance scenes there is still plenty of gold to sift from the dirt here but it's probably not worth the time if um and again i can't help but compare this to the first one if you're not a fan of flesh for frankenstein then it, it, this this movie is probably not for you because it's more mostly more of the same you know the outlandish fan fiction of, of classic horror literature it's i guess it's kind of like those movies and video games that um attempt to adulterize like fairy tales where they try to put like a darker spin on it but like uh it, it's like a what if a weird white supremacist message board gave their take on classic horror literature that's that's probably what <laughs> flesh for frankenstein would have been right anyway um i didn't like this one as much as the first I'm going to give it about two and a half stars because it didn't quite keep my interest in the same way. Yeah. So like I said, historically, I have not liked this one. I, I didn't when I was younger, but I enjoyed it more this time. And what I like about it is that it's got some of the same themes as Frankenstein, but it's more clear what they're going for. Like the, the comedy is more straightforward. It's more like uh, 
sitcom-esque, I guess. The, the political or economic commentary is clearer. It, it's more obviously satirical or I guess its targets are more obvious. I think that Udo Kier's performance is a little funnier, a little more ridiculous. And D'Alessandro's character worked a little bit more for me in this one, even though he's like sleazy and ridiculous. But you're right. Like these come together. If you don't like one, you're probably not going to like the other. I think it makes sense to watch them back to back. Uh, they were filmed back to back. It it feels like an episode of fairy tale theater where the same crew is telling you two different stories. There, this one is a little less, I think, visually stunning than Frankenstein is, uh, but it's still really lovely to look at. I give this one three and a half stars. Wow. And that is no reflection of the logic of the plot because there's, <laughs> you know, this is a movie that exists outside of plot <laughs> in some ways. No, th these are definitely turn your brain, well, turn half of your brain off while watching it. All right, so that is it for our Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey double feature. I guess this was kind of like Grindhouse where you got two for the price of one. Let us know what you think of this format um, without the walkthrough and, and with two movies. And did you like it? Did you hate it? Uh, do you want us to never do it again? Yeah, let us know. Yeah, and, you dumbasses can't even talk about one film. Now you try to talk about two. Yeah, I mean, maybe we were too ambitious. But next week, we're going to get back to normal, at least for now. Uh, we're going to be doing the, the 1980 uh, Italian gore fest, Dr. Butcher MD, also known as Cannibal or Zombie Apocalypse. Is that right? Z um, yeah, I think it is. Or Zombie Holocaust. Yeah, it's Zombie Holocaust, Zombie with an I. We I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it had had all of these titles at one point or another. But this is a cool like mashup of the cannibal genre with the zombie genre. And it's got, you know, uh, the cast of Italian regulars who are in all of these zombie and cannibal movies. I think it's really fun. We're going to be watching the, the VHS version that came out on Paragon and Thriller Video, which is edited, but not, not for gore. I think it has like a different intro and some plot is taken out, but I don't think it's anything that you'll miss. I think you can watch either version of this film and be satisfied. Do you know where they can find it, Leland? You can find the version we're not going to cover on YouTube, but the only changes should be the American intro is going to be missing and you're going to have to sit through a lot more boring exposition and character development. <laughs> Yeah, and this is not a movie about either of those two things. This is a movie about seeing cannibals and zombies rip people apart. So definite change of pace from this week. Uh, so check that out and join us next week for Dr. Butcher MD. Until then, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at video.stores.nightmares where I post everything that we do. Um, I'll post those video gem boxes that I was describing. 
And other than that, Leland, do you have any last words? Did we get any hate mail yet? Nope, none. Mm. I feel like we're doing something wrong. We've gotten praise. So thank you for those who have um, given us good feedback. Keep those five-star reviews coming and subscribe, rate us. That, that'll help increase our, um, it'll help more people find us. And as always, thank you for your continued support. We are recording this on the weekend of VHS Fest. So I hope that everybody there had a great time. And you can listen to this when you get back. And uh, maybe we'll see you there next year. All right. Have a great week, everyone. And we'll talk to you later. Bye.